Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. It's me. You're listening to episode number 85, Removing the Veil of Injustice and No Longer Accepting the Anti-Black Narrative. In this episode, I get to talk with Jakia Fields. Jakia is 20 years old and in her fourth year at Colorado State University. She's a women and gender studies major with a minor in anthropology and political science. She was born in Denver, Colorado, and is an alumna of Denver North High School. Jakia has been an activist for as long as she can remember. She's passionate about social justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, women in Black Lives Matter, and spirituality. We talk in this episode about her experiences growing up with homelessness and being a black woman who was given a white narrative to live by. She talks about learning to have agency, which is the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices, to not be afraid to use our voices and rock the boat when fighting injustice. Her message is a powerful one that will cause people who haven't looked at the issue she addresses to stretch and see things from a different perspective, which is exactly what we are needing in our world is a new perspective that includes the lives and experiences of black people. Jakia talks about the importance of no longer accepting the anti-black narrative and what we can do to help change the system of oppression that has been in place for far too long. I learned a lot from hearing Jakia speak her truth and I hope that you do too. It's time for change and we stand with her and we are listening. Black Lives Matter, let's dive in. Here's my interview with Jakia. Welcome to this episode of the We Podcast. I am very excited to have the amazing Jakia Fields with me today. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with her. I'm really looking forward for all of you to meet her and hear her story. I don't really know your story, so I'll be hearing it for the first time, and I'm very excited about that. 
the way that I kind of met Jakia at this, I'm really meeting you for the first time, but saw you was at a protest in downtown Denver a few weeks ago. And I saw you speak and I saw you from a distance and just really admired you, admired the way that you spoke and carry yourself. And I guess I can say just a light I feel that I saw radiating from you. And so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being my guest and coming here and and sharing your heart with us. Wow. Thank you for having me here. This is really exciting. And I'm glad that you were able to see me in that light first. You know, we're living in really interesting times right now. Yes. No, well, the thing is, is it it is in a hard, heavy, I have a struggle with the words to describe, but, you know, the protest environment, it is heavy and it's also beautiful in a lot of ways. And so it's like they coexist together, but in that environment, you just really shining your light was very obvious. So Thank you. I've been doing activism and social justice work for as long as I can remember. And so I'm glad that the work is showing, you know what I mean? The work that I've been doing for a long time, it shows in the way that I articulate these issues and respond to these issues and be a tool for people in the community and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And I have to say when I got your, you know, you filled out some stuff before this and I got it back. And when I read that you're 20 years old, I was shocked. (laughs) It is a very shocking thing for people. I'm turning 21 though in two weeks. So maybe things will make more sense, but yeah, I'm 20 and it feels like I've been 20 for longer than a year. (laughs) Well, it, I think it just speaks to I don't know. I would maybe guess that you're an old soul. Would you say that? Yeah, I've actually been, a lot of people do tell me that, that I'm an old soul. And I, I feel that in my heart that I'm an old soul. I get deja vu. I experience that more than I thought I would ever experience deja vu in my life. But I would describe myself as an old soul. I feel like I've been here before and I'm back again for some reason, you know? Yeah. Back again, doing good work. Yeah. (laughs) So can you tell us about you? Tell us about kind of your story, um, where you grew up, just what, what has kind of brought you to where you are now? Yeah. Well, so my name is Jaquia Lily Fields. I'm 20. Um, I'm currently at CSU right now. So I am majoring in women's studies, women and gender studies. And I have a minor, two minors in anthropology and political science. I am a North High School alumna. So I am from the Denver North area. However, due to homelessness and stuff like that, I was traveling all over Colorado. And so I share community with people in Aurora, Arvada, Denver, everywhere you could think in Colorado. I'm also the oldest sibling of like 10. So I have a lot of younger siblings. And so being a role model is something that was ingrained in me since my little brother had came about. And yeah, that's a little bit about where I'm from. Yeah, I'm from Denver, Colorado. But I guess given the fact that home was never really a 
a physical place for me because we dealt with homelessness. I didn't necessarily think of home as like a house, but more rather the people that were there or taking care of me or who loved me. And so I kind of have home everywhere in Colorado. But if you know, you ask my birth certificate, you look at my birth certificate, it's going to say Denver, Colorado. But um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And what kind of started this journey? I don't know. I would say that there were a multitude of things that began this journey for me. It wasn't until high school that I became, I, I worked for an organization. I volunteered and I, I became an intern at Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, which is on 32nd and Federal um, near Denver North High School. And that's when I kind of started learning like the jargon and how to be an activist rather than just being aware of the injustices that people are experiencing given their identities. And so it wasn't until that organization, they actually taught me how to articulate myself when addressing these issues, how to look at food deserts that are affecting, you know, Colorado and the communities within those food deserts and how they're affected. They, they taught me how to address my issues when it came to oppressive things that were going on and that were, I was experiencing. And so specifically for my school, we were experiencing a lot of hostility, I would say. There was a lot of hostility and I would say tension between students and the teachers. The students were predominantly Hispanic or Latinx descent or I would say Mexicano. And most of the teachers, and that's usually something that's a reality for a lot of, you know, high schools or institutions in general, those within power are usually the white-bodied individuals. And so I noticed that over time in my four years of being in high school, that there was this weird hostility between the students and the teachers that wasn't necessarily addressed, but I knew it fell in the lines of social justice because a lot of students were feeling like they were treated wrong or they were sought to be stupid because of their identities or they were just criminalized, really. A lot of students of color felt criminalized. And I knew I was just one of the very few African-American students at that school. And so I understood myself differently, of course, but I was very aware of how I was treated versus another student. and. I can admit that I reaped the benefits of being a token. I was tokenized a lot in high school, I would say. Mm. I, it was very, very uncomfortable, though, to articulate that tokenization to other students, you know? And it wasn't until Padres y Jovenes, you know, they were like, okay, this is an example of tokenization, and this is how you're probably affected by it. That was when I was like, okay, well teacher, you're actually tokenizing me and you shouldn't be setting me as a standard as a black woman and tell other black people or other students of color, like you should assimilate and become like X, Y, and Z for whatever reasons. And I knew that I was often used as an example for students, but it wasn't an example like to motivate. It was rather like you need to assimilate and Jakia has assimilated this way so you need to follow that steps that in itself made me have to do some self-reflection on how I was using opportunities that I got in high school how I was using them for my future and how other people weren't getting opportunities even though we sat at the same lunch table and so I know that 
I usually say, I don't know, but I know that that's an issue, right? And so we worked towards, you know, building relationships between the students and the faculty members and staff, because I feel like high school students, even though they're learning, you know, they still have a right, they have a say of how they want to learn and how they should receive curriculum. You know, curriculum is a whole nother conversation, given that it's predominantly white. It's a white narrative. I don't know. I'm just thinking about how that kind of shaped being given the white narrative all of my life really shaped the way I thought about blackness Mm -hmm. in return caused me to challenge the way that the world sees blackness and how I see blackness. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I was only taught and many, many black, this is a reality for many black people and people of color. They're only taught about like Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. It's a very, a narrow understanding of the history and how we have contributed to American history. It's a very narrow understanding. And that was all I was given. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was problematic because it limited my capacity of understanding my own blackness. I only saw my blackness through Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or as a slave, but not as inventors or scientists or mathematicians or writers or journalists or teachers, all of those things that are in our life. There's so many different types of ways of being black, yet I was only given one narrative to be black and I was expected to fulfill fill that narrative and it was shaped by whiteness right Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I had experienced um unfortunately I had I experienced a sexual assault in high school Mm -hmm. at my last year of high school when I found out that I wasn't going to get justice for that I impulsively I did this out of impulsion but it felt right I put it on Facebook that and I give the name of the people who harmed me and I said what they did And from then on, my life had changed because I had experienced the reality of slut shaming, but racialized slut shaming because I'm a black woman. Right. And so I thought I thought that, oh, people were automatically going to be there for me because. I'm admitting to this trauma that I've experienced, but my, my DMs, my messages were filled with harassment, filled with people being very disgusting, very nasty towards me, mm. which sparked my anxiety. That was the first time I had ever experienced anxiety. And I remember my mentor at the time, she was telling me, like, explaining to me what anxiety was, and I couldn't really understand what she was talking about I just knew that I was I knew that I was being attacked and all of a sudden it was showing up in my stomach as anxiety like people's words were internally affecting me that that changed but that was a very pivotal moment in my life because I had put my business out there you know and and that's a business that that's that's something that people should know I think people need to be more aware of they need to be more aware of what girls experience on a day-to-day basis and um it was one student one person went to the high school and another i don't know too much about him i had to face him i had to look at him i had to do that for the rest of my senior year i experienced a lot of trauma you know from that because i lost a lot of friends i gained new friends though too right so as I was losing a whole bunch of people I thought that were there for me, I was also gaining a new perspective and gaining people that were there for me and gaining another understanding of what I had gone through. 
However, I think due to financial reasons and given, as I explained, I was homeless during high school and middle school and elementary school. And this is the first time I've experienced my own room, my own bed. And so I remember prior to that, I, I felt like I wasn't able to really talk about the emotional aspect of what I was going through and like how my depression was elevating and how anxiety was elevating and how I didn't have actually the resources to remedy these situations as someone who was like a white survivor, um, Mm -hmm. given my position. And unfortunately my mom felt like she was accountable, felt like she was accountable for everything that had happened to me, even though that wasn't, that's not true, right? You know, the people who harm are the people who will harm. And, you know, my mother, she felt like she didn't know how to be there for me. She didn't know because she was a survivor as well, right? And so you have these two survivors trying to talk about the emotional aspect of experiencing something so traumatic, but that they've never even experienced what resources are to talk about those things. I think, I can't speak for my mother, but I know for me, it built up it built up and I, I, I felt this pressure in my body evolving and, and I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't know how to name it. It wasn't just depression, you know, because there were things that were said to me that were targeted to my race, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, targeted my body, targeted my intelligence, targeted my socioeconomic status, all because I was assaulted and I had revealed that to people. And for my freshman year of college, I experienced a depression where, you know, I, I had got a dorm, right? And so I could actually close people off, right? I have a dorm now, I can hide, right? And so I spent a lot of time hiding. I spent a lot of time not talking to friends or just really sheltering myself because I didn't know what was going on with me. I dealt with a lot of suicide ideation and depression and anxiety and PTSD, and it was all over the place. It's interesting because during that time, too, I was also a political science major. I was just a political science major. That's what I had wanted. And these are all, it's all going to make sense. It's all going to make sense. Oh, yeah. That's good. (laughs) I came in being a political science major and carrying a lot of weight that hadn't been addressed. And I just knew that I wanted to be, you know, in politics. I wanted to be able to pass legislation. I wanted to be able to change the world for girls who, and girls and guys and those who are non-binary and trans. I wanted to be a political actor for those people. While I was going to my political science classes, I wasn't even really there. I wasn't present. I wasn't really happy with what I was learning because I was just relearning the same institution that had caused me harm, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I failed, right? Uh, I didn't do as well as I would normally would have like in high school right and then on top of that i didn't have that familial support i cut off ties with my family my freshman year of high school i mean my freshman year of college i cut off ties with family i didn't really talk to my mother as much as i saw my friends talking to their parents and so then i was also experiencing this really really deep 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 loneliness i was really lonely even moving my first day of college like my my 
teacher helped me move into my first my dorm right my teacher sat with me and ate my first ate the first meal with me at college right it, i didn't have that normal experience why well, i don't know i don't want to say normal though i didn't have that expected experience that those who go to college have right because usually if you go to college historically you would have had some financial stability you would have had like a parent you would have had like a nuclear family structure that would have allowed you and supported you in college no i was a first generation going into college and i wasn't just going to college i was learning how to be in college at the same time and so that was very difficult right but it wasn't until i stumbled into this class that I took in with um, my professor, Dr. Caridad Souza, it's called Women of Color in the United States. By the grace of God, I stumbled into that class not even knowing that my life was going to change simply because that class, right? And in that class, I found myself being present because I was reading things and I was reading stories about women who were experiencing the same thing as me, you know, going through the same thing as I. And so, I was like, wait, I can like learn about my history and get a credit for it. I can learn from a book that centers the identities of people who look like me and like my friends. Not only did that realization like spark me changing my major, I changed my major. I was like, I'm not gonna be a political science major anymore. I'm gonna be a women's studies major. Not only instances like that changed my um, perspective, but it also made me realize how freaking important it is to know yourself and know your history and know who your mother is and know who your father is and know your and know who came before you and to know who your ancestors are. More, I remember reading like uh, The Master's Tools by Audre Lorde and she talks about how the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That's basically like iterating how if you are showing up in a performative way, right? If you are perpetuating the master's tools, being microaggressive, you know, being anti-black or holding prejudices or being homophobic or doing all of these things that fall in the line of white supremacy, then you are not doing the work that you that really needs to be done. I was contending with the fact that I was raised to hate everything about my blackness. As I said earlier, I was only given one narrative of blackness, mm -hmm. right? I don't know. I kind of not had an identity crisis, but an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. I had an identity crisis because I didn't know that I had so much agency, right? I think it's about agency. How much agency do you have? Because we live in a state, right? We live in this, we live in this nation state that was built off of the backs of those who were enslaved and it was stolen from indigenous people. This land was stolen, right? We, this land that we are on is, belongs to the Arapaho, the Ute, the Navajo, Cherokee, Blackfoot. I was like, I'm from America. I was born here in America, but my ancestry lies in Africa. This country that I'm in doesn't want me here. It's obvious that they don't want people who look like me here. Hmm. I don't really know too much about being an African woman because that's not my identity, I, though that's my ancestry. I was in this liminal space, this in-between of so much confusion and so much curiosity and so much hurt and so much pain and so much, so much of nothing. But when you don't have nothing, that's also the opportunity to build something. Although I was in this space, in this in-between, 
I was also given the opportunity to rebuild and to take control and to have agency. And I am very thankful of having mentors in my life who told me you have the agency. It's just how you get it. It's how you use it. I find power in education. I found power in my spirituality. I found power in building community. What's interesting is that I was in this liminal space, right? I was in this in-between space. Where am I supposed to go? Who am I supposed to be? How should I show up? But then I was also receiving criticism from people who look like me, like black identified people who look like me. I was receiving criticism from people of color and from white people on how I should and should not show up as a black woman. I was being told, hey, Jakia, like, maybe you shouldn't say that. Maybe you shouldn't speak your truth, basically. Maybe you should tone it down a little bit. Maybe you shouldn't have said that the way you did. All of these comments, right, they sound like they're supposed to help you and aid you to become a better person, but they're really trying to constrict you and tell you how you should be for the betterment of white supremacy. Of course, you know, this is a process. I don't have everything down packed, right? So I would take some of that criticism and I would be like, man, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I spoke my truth, but maybe I could have said it in this way so it could have been more approachable. It could have been more um, accepting. That questioning that we have, you know how you have your instinct, you do something, you want to do something, Mm -hmm. and you feel like it's going to be good for you. That's your intuition telling you it's going to be good for you. But then you have that thought, that other thought comes in. It's like, are you sure? It makes you second guess yourself. I think that's the, the voice of white supremacy, that voice that's been constructed over time to tell you how you should and should not be. Limit yourself. Limit yourself for the sake of other people. So when I was experiencing that trauma of being assaulted in high school and I was experiencing over, I'm telling you, I had around 10,000 people on my live video when I was talking about what happened to me, slut shaming me, laughing at me telling me that I was wrong, telling me I shouldn't have wore what I wore, telling me I shouldn't have been drinking, telling me that I shouldn't have been doing the wrong things and I wouldn't have ended up in the wrong place. They're telling you all this stuff and all this stuff is stemming from their, that voice that they have. We all have that voice in our head that limits us, that tells us what we should and should not do, not for the sake of a betterment of ourselves, but for the acceptance of white supremacy. So I had all these people telling me that I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that. And of course you listen to them. You listen to them because you want to be accepted. You don't want to be the outcast. You don't want to be put aside. You want to be accepted. But what happens? Why don't we critique? Why don't we question what happens when you are outcasted? What does it mean to be outcasted? It means you have no one else around you to tell you how you're alone, basically. But what can you do with that loneliness? Why are they questioning you? My professor over time, and I would say that she's literally the reason why I'm here today. She's the reason why I'm alive. She would make me, she's like, when people question why you do stuff, why don't you question why they're questioning you? Why don't you question where that, where, where is it rooting from? Are you questioning me because you want me to be better? Or are you questioning me because you don't think that how I am is good enough? Or you think it's too much? Mm -hmm. What is too much? What is the epitome? What is the end goal? Like, as you can see, life is continual. It's been continuing over and over. It's a whole cycle. So why are we given this narrative that there's an an epitome, there's an end? They say, set your goals for life. They tell you that 
from this age to this age, you're going to be an adolescent. This is when you're, you're basically going to learn how to. And then when you're an adult, you're going to enact it. That all that how-toing, you've done learning, now you have to enact it from this time to this time. And then they tell you you have to retire at this time. You're no longer needed for the workforce. Now you have to go and do something else, right? It's like so constructed, but why don't we question the construction? Mm. Why can't I question the constructions? Why do I have to? Why do I have to accept what you're giving to me? Why can't I aspire for more? Why don't you aspire for more? Why are you allowing whatever this stuff is to limit you from doing what you actually want to do. And I'm not trying to say it in a condescending way, like, oh, well, you know, you're not on the right path. No, I'm legitimately questioning why we don't question enough. Why do we have to accept what's given to us? That in itself is having some complacency with the system that we're in, which is a white supremacist system. They don't want you to question it because white supremacy doesn't want to be named. Because mm-hmm. when, you, when you encounter someone who does something problematic and you're like, okay, that was racist. They don't even address what you were talking about. They just want to go to the fact that, no, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. I'm sorry you are. Mm-hmm. We live in a racist society. Mm-hmm. It was built for racism. Like this is a racist incident. We, this, this is racist. It's, it's a system. It's a system of racism. And so you can't live in America and not be a racist if you have the given identities to be a racist. Even if you are aware of it or not, you have, we all play some part in this system and that's what's important. Mm-hmm. Looking at the ways that we contribute to this system of oppression. How do we contribute to our own oppression? And that's something I had to sit with. How do I contribute to my own oppression? Because they're all related. Now, I went through this period of time because as I was learning about Feminism, spirituality also came about. And I learned about the erotic. Audre Lorde is like a favorite author of mine, if you can't tell. But I understand the erotic as, now people may understand it only in a sexual way. But what if we think about the erotic in terms of being just unruly? Unruly. You're unruly in a sense that people can't come into your space, into your aura, into your energetic field and tell you how you should move your energy. Now, I went, through, I, I went through this questioning period, and I was like, okay, how does spirituality, though, relate to, like, white supremacy and racism? Like, they don't, they're not connecting to me. Like, I want to see the connection, but I don't get it. I don't get how they would even, how does a ghost relate to a racist or relate to police brutality or relate to redlining or relate to food deserts. How? I asked the question, I sent it out into the universe and man, it was brought back to me with boom, 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 facts upon facts upon facts, readings upon readings upon readings. It's just so beautiful how it fell in place. You know, Mm -hmm. I saw that white supremacy constricts the flow of energy. That's, what it is because look at look at this when you're happy that's an energy to you there's an energy to you when you're happy there's an energy to you when you're sad there's an energy to you when you're angry there's an energy to you when you're whatever emotion that you're feeling and i think that children and animals are always the best indicators of figuring out someone's energy when you smile i'm pretty sure someone else will smile Hmm. think about that in terms of energy When I smile, I send an energy 
I send an energy wave to someone else and they smile and then the next person smiles and we're in a whole room of smiling people. But let one person say something rude or disrespectful and watch all that energy, all that energy deplete, go down. We are so connected with one another and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize how connected we're one, with, one, with one another. Now let's think about discrimination as a form of an energy. Mm-hmm. Or let's think about a racist being as a form. That's a, that's a whole different energy than someone who's not racist. And let me explain why. The way that you conduct yourself on a day-to-day basis is very telling on your person, your soul, your spirit, the things around you. It's very telling. I believe that if you are racist, you have a certain mannerism to you. There is a way that you think about the world. There's a way that you conduct yourself, even your articulation, the way that you speak. Because racist beings believe in some superior hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So when you conduct yourself and you think of yourself as a superior being, that energy emits and people receive that energy. And the way that you treat people, they will receive that. So if you're going around saying disrespectful things, harmful and racist things, you're hurting someone's feelings, right? At the end of the day, you're hurting someone's feelings. Of course, you're doing something, of course, more problematic, like perpetuating the system. But you're hurting someone's feeling, and that's an energy. That's an energy in itself. I was like, okay, well, I want to understand how spirituality, racism, and biology work. Now I'm like, I want to dig a little bit deeper. I want to dig a little bit deeper. I learned about how folate is a molecule that we need, right? Folate, we need... It, we get it from foods. We usually get it from green foods, so like broccoli, spinach, kale. It, it's, it's, it's necessary for DNA replication. It's necessary for reproduction. It's, necessar- it's just necessary. We need it. We need folate. Folate, you can find it in foods, such as produce. You can find it, like, anywhere. Let's say that you live in Denver, Colorado, and you live in Five Points. Actually, I'm just going to be honest. This is my story. I lived in Five Points area near Bruce Randolph. You know where um, Colfax is and then on the other side is Cherry Creek. Mm-hmm. I live on the other side. And where I was located, down the street, if you walk down the street, there's nothing but a 7-Eleven and a um, liquor store. A 7-Eleven and a liquor store. Mm-hmm. That was in my proximity. If I or my mother wanted to get any fresh produce, we would have to travel on the bus about a mile to get to the nearest Walmart just to get some food. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I had five, no, four younger siblings that my mom had to take care of us. So there's six of us in general. My, single, my mom, who's a single mother, had to take five kids on the bus a mile away from her home to get some food. But there's a 7-Eleven just down the street with snacks, with chips, with things that are not, that don't have substance to them. And there's a liquor store. I remember one time we went on a little uh, tour of Denver. Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, we, when I worked with them, we went on a tour and we went to my area. And I didn't even know I lived in a food desert until they pointed it out. Jaquia, you live in a food desert. This is why you don't have a, a King Supers or a Whole Foods. You don't have all of these places within your area because it's predominantly black and brown people who are in this area. When you go across the street, when you go across Colfax into Cherry Creek, 
it's a whole different reality. It, it, it's literally only five minutes mm -hmm. to walk across the street and get to Cherry Creek. And you see a Whole Foods, a Sprouts, all of these places that are accessible. That's, that's our main word, accessibility. All these places, they are accessible for any individuals. But within that area, the demographic is predominantly white. Okay, so I live in a food desert. I'm, I'm starving. I have an attitude because I haven't ate. I haven't had a good meal. I'm just yearning for some fruit and vegetables. I grew up vegetarian. My mom had, us, had me uh, when I was a child. I was a vegetarian for some time. And so I had a resistance to like canned foods and like, you know, bacon, just things like that. It wasn't what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. But my siblings didn't have that reality because when they came into the world, our financial, you know, our financial stability, it was different. It was different. So um, I'm hungry. I'm starving. Me and my siblings were hungry. And my mom can't, my mom just can't take us on the bus. We can't get on the bus, right? Because you have to be a certain age to ride the bus by yourself just for the sake of your safety. And so you go to the 7-Eleven and you go get a pizza and the next day you get a burrito and then the next day you can only get chips and the next day, and it's, and it's like you only have a certain amount of money to eat only a certain amount of food. Over time, you're not getting your folate, for example. You're not getting the produce that you need to fully function. So let's ask what happens when you don't get folate, just folate. You can become irritable. You can become depressed. You're more likely to have children premature. And it's just so happened that African-American women and indigenous women have the highest rate of preterm births. It's not a coincidence. It's because those specific populations, especially the indigenous community, they are targeted and they are put in neighborhoods where they don't have access to produce. They don't have access to the food that they need to survive, to live on a day-to-day -day basis. You're harboring all of this pent-up energy from one not being able to eat, and then now you're not getting the nutrition that you, the nutritional value. You're not getting the nutritional value that you need, so that's an issue. Mm -hmm. I'm only I'm thinking from my mother's perspective. You have five children, five mouths to feed. They don't want chips anymore. They want some real food, but you don't have the accessibility to drive a mile to get to Walmart. And so over time, you know, these children are becoming accustomed to eating a certain diet that's actually not beneficial for their body. It's not mm -hmm. beneficial for the body. I just saw that it's very intentional. Everything is very intentional in the way that black and brown bodies are placed within America. We are intentionally placed within food deserts so we don't have access to these nutritional things because they know that over time, if you don't have access to folate, you will have preterm births. You can have preterm births consecutively because you don't have, and that's just an example. I'm just giving an example. Of course, there's other things that go into preterm births, but like, what about, like, it's stressful to not have access to food. That's a stressor. I'm trying not to get um, emotional thinking about this because I was directly impacted. Even food is political. It's crazy to me that even food is political. We live in a country that's determined to eliminate black and brown bodies. They are determined to eliminate black and brown bodies. And the way that they push their agenda is through food desert, is through redlining, is uh, voter ID laws. Like they have, the master's tools are lined up. The baseline is rooted in white supremacy. 
it's rooted in basically, I would say the extinction of black and brown bodies. Mm-hmm. And so this is the way that they enacted mm-hmm. by not allowing you to live in a neighborhood that has access to these things, because we know that if you have these things, you'd have an opportunity to get out of that system. I, I sit with it in a, in a certain type of way because, as I said, I was directly impacted by it. I'm getting flashbacks of the times I was very irritable or just really frustrated with my own mother because I wasn't getting the food that I wanted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it seems like it's a small thing, but it's not. No. It's not. There are people who are homeless. They're starving. They don't have access to water. They don't have access to all of the things that people supposedly should have access to in America, right? Because we live in America, the great. But it's not true. That's not the reality. And when are we going to wake up and remove the veil from in front of our faces mm-hmm. and see all of the chaos that has been just bubbling and just going and it's being fed like i feel like white supremacy is this beast that's being fed the bodies of black and brown people like that's what that's how it survives it survives off of the exploitation of those who don't meet the status quo and so the status quo is white heterosexual cisgender christian protestant male And so if you are challenging that status quo, you are going to be challenged. Your person is going to be challenged. Mm. So that's where it goes back to why, why do you feel like you're, why do you feel like you can be comfortable with talking to people the way that you talk to? Why do you feel like you can do that? Why are you not abiding by the status quo? Because by abiding by the status quo is literally contributing to my own oppression. I learned that withholding all of these isms and not seeing, you know, this fight in an intersectional lens, I'm basically running in circles. I'm running in circles or I'm banging my head on a wall. I cannot be liberated if my sisters aren't liberated. There's no way because we're all interconnected in some type of way. I don't know. I feel like I kind of went on on a tangent with that, but they're just all very, 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 very interconnected. And I have a privilege. I, as I said, I was a first generation. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm still going to be a first generation, you know, student, but I had to pay to get this knowledge and to have this understanding. I had to pay for it. When I go back to my community, I don't think that they see the same Jakia that left. When you come back and you're exposed to all of this knowledge, I know for me, I didn't feel comfortable with having the same conversations I had before, you know? I don't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable talking the way that I did before because now I see, now I understand the impact both spiritually and physically Mm -hmm. of conducting myself in those certain types of ways. It's really interesting to me that in America, we have such a negative, we depict like polytheistic cultures, polytheistic religions or spiritual ways is very negative. Usually those in power, they go to like a yoga session, you know, or they go to their Reiki master or they appropriate the things that they stripped away from those on the margins. And they capitalize off of the things that we did. But yet when we do them, we're punished for it. Mm -hmm. We're sought to be 
imbeciles, essentially. What I am contending with is how willing am I to be resistant? What are the repercussions of being resistant in a system that wants you to be complacent? Will it cost your family? Will it cost the relationships that you've had? Will it cost the spirituality you thought you knew? Will it cost your identity that you thought you knew? Will it cost yourself? Yes, it's going to cost all of those things. But what is it going to bring you in the long run? And I'm really focused on the long run. Hmm. I'm really determined for the long run. I need to be here as long as I can physically, right? Because I believe in reincarnation. I believe in spirits. I believe in our ancestors. What can I do? in the long run that will allow people, especially within these marginalized communities, to see those connections and to resist those connections. There's so much empowerment, right? We were talking about how um, it's very scary to be in those spaces of protest, but it's also very beautiful. That feeling that you have is an energy. That's an energy. Like protest create an energy, a very forceful energy, right? Because you might go to a protest, right? And not everyone's on the same page, but we kind of on the same page of what's going on. There's a reason why we are all here today in this one space and we are taking up space. And what does it mean to take up space and have the capacity to resist? I think that we are walking resistance of white supremacy like the fact that we critique that's a form of resistance i think that we live in a system where it's like don't question authority you don't question the higher-ups you have to be okay with what you're given because this is what you deserve but what if i'm not okay with this and what if i do want to question authority and what if i don't even see you as authority then what happens and then what happens when i start telling more people about the knowledge that I have. There's a very specific reason why they only give us a certain curriculum. Mm. It's intentional why they only give us a curriculum. And as I was taught as a black woman to hate myself, I understand that white bodied individuals were taught to hate. And they were taught to hold all of this power that really just hides emptiness. Why do you not address the fact that you are empty? Why do you not address the fact that you are just so tied to land? Why do you feel like your liberation comes from such physical things, such material things? Where do you fall spiritually? Are you aligned? Mm -hmm. Are you settled or are you unsettled? And there are a lot of unsettled bodies. And I can say that I'm still unsettled. Sometimes I don't know how to, you know, manage the anxieties or manage racial battle fatigue. Yeah. It's unsettling. And you know, what's so beautiful about spirituality, I'm, I'm like, I see why white supremacy wouldn't teach us about, you know, other aspects of spirituality, you know, because you realize that there's just so much choice. Mm. it's it's there's so much choice it's not just left or right. right it's not just it's it's not we're not limited to left and right we're not limited to one and two that's why there's infinity we're not limited to all of these things that are limiting us but but yet in the same sense we are limited right because i have to i still have to acknowledge that there are systems in place that deliberately deliberately prevent people from knowing deliberately prevent people from having access, but I got access. 
And I realized that spiritually, you can't, you can't really tame a soul that knows, that's knowing. Mm. And I feel like I'm in this process where I am knowing, I'm becoming, I'm, I'm, I'm in this liminal space, right, as I said, and I'm feeling it. I'm just feeling it so much with so much stuff, so much stuff that I didn't even know that I could have because I thought that if I went out to the store, I could buy it. I could just buy it and be fulfilled and I could buy it and feel this void mm-hmm. and feel that emptiness when really it's just you. Like that's why self relate to the community because there's different types of individualism that is within America. I think there's an individualism that's very narcissistic and it's very like, I'm just about my life. Like who cares about yours? I, it's about me, me, me. But then there's that individualism like, okay, let me make sure I'm right with self so I can contribute. I think that we need to realize that, well, I think from my perspective, I can only speak for myself, but I don't believe that white supremacy is sustainable. I think that people forget that there were times where white supremacy wasn't even a thing. It was man-made. It was created. There were civilizations thriving prior to Christopher Columbus, prior to colonization. Mm -hmm. But we've been taught that that's all, that's all history has ever been. We haven't been around for 600 years. We've been around for trillion, a long time, a really, really long time. I don't want to say trillion because that's exaggerating, but we've been around for a while. Why don't we use that as a form of hope rather than accepting what is? Why don't we remember what we had people who were living and thriving prior to colonization? That is a form of hope. And hope is very radical. And I don't think that hope is something that you have. It's a, it's a state of being. I live in hope. I don't have an option to not live in hope. And I think that's why maybe I can be read wrong because I'm so determined and hope has me in her arms. She's wrapped me up. Mm-hmm. She's cradling me. I'm her baby. I am a walking manifestation of hope as everyone who is living. We are hope. But why do we not see how radical hope is? I think that hope is radical because it's basically saying forget all, forget all of the limitations, forget your boundaries. I'm hoping for better than this. What's so beautiful about it is like manifestation is real. There's a reason why spelling. There's a word spell in spelling. There's a reason why curse words are curses. Like, we don't even, we don't, like, it's so, it's right in our faces, but it's, like, also, like, hidden. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There, we have the power to create. We are, we are walking manifestations of God. Like, we are divine. I am divine. This woman that I'm looking at in this little, you know, camera, you are divine. <laughs> we are literally walking images of God themselves. And I say them because I don't think that God is restricted to one gender because mm-hmm. there's so many different people. Why wouldn't God reflect the diversity that we have in this world? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that white supremacy is very telling because it, 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 it tells you that it basically tells you not to have dignity and self. It makes you want to question self. 
-hmm. You can't be right. Don't listen to your intuition. Go look it up on Google and Google will give you your answer. Be dependent on what we give you rather than yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that is how spirituality and that is how white supremacy works. Y'all want me to believe that self is not credible enough unless I go to somebody else and be like, hey, do you think that that was okay? Or do you see what I see? Oh, yeah, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Self is very powerful. We are very powerful. We are, we are, we are so divine. We are so divine and we don't even realize it. You know, we don't even mm-hmm. realize it. And, and it's because of the system that we live in. And white supremacy is not just constricted to the borders of America. It's everywhere. It's in the entire world. Why is it that I can't listen to my intuition and let that be my fact? Changing every day. Facts are, facts are changing. And learning about eugenics and the fact that, that there was a point in time in history where people thought that eugenics was legitimate. It was lawful mm-hmm. to be a eugenicist. If we base our knowledge, if we base our morals on law, I think that's where we kind of get confused because we have other people creating the system and telling us how we should be rather than listening to ourselves and what our bodies are yearning for. Mm -hmm. We don't allow our bodies to tell us who we should be because everyone tells us that our bodies are not credible enough. And Mm -hmm. as I said, you got to go to Google, but you don't got to go to Google. If you get this, there's a reason our amygdala, our amygdala is the flight or fight, right? It's, that's what it's responsible for. Mm-hmm. If you're in a space that's uncomfortable for you, could you describe to me how you feel when you're uncomfortable? If you're, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm uncomfortable, I think I get anxious. I, I'm constantly looking around me, trying to look for danger, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So your body is telling you that there's something in this space that is alarming. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you look around is because you don't know exactly what it is. You're trying to find out what it is, but your body's already telling you, girl, something isn't right. Mm-hmm. What would white supremacy tell you? It would tell you, um, well, from what we can see, everything looks good. You feel a bit nervous, but everything looks good. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, it's not good. Right. And then you get, you get mad at yourself for not listening to yourself. Totally. We always say, why didn't I listen to myself? Or why didn't I say that? Right. Why am right. I just now thinking about this? Right. Because we doubt ourselves so much. And that is a contribution to white supremacy because mm-hmm. it doesn't want you to find wholesomeness within yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have to find wholesomeness within yourself. And that in itself is a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. That is, it's a form of resistance to love yourself. It's a form of resistance to radically love yourself. To say, actually, I don't need to get this, this, and this in order to be beautiful. I think I like what I like. I like what I see when I look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be crazy was, for a second. <laughs> that was good. So good. I mean, I, I, you have really opened my eyes up to a lot of, things I'd never really even thought about before, you know, how the, how white supremacy is related to spirituality. And wow. I mean, I think I'm still trying to process almost because, you know, my background is a very white, obviously father who was very religious, very fear-based, very 
well, I, I would say probably very ingrained in white supremacy. And, you know, I, and I fully understand and get that I am privileged because of the color of my skin and how, you know, as you're talking, like thinking about even for me, who I was, was not okay. And not to the extreme, obviously, but that it, it just, I never fully put those two together. Yeah. There's this book I feel like you would like. It's Resma Manakam. I don't want to butcher his name. I took this class called Whiteness, Gender, and Sexuality. Mm-hmm. And in that class, we read this book called I I am very disappointed that I am not remembering this book in the time that I need it. But what I appreciate about this book so much is that it addresses the trauma that you experience as a white person committing these acts of violence. You, just because you have power doesn't mean you don't have feelings. Just because you have power doesn't mean that you don't have a heart and organs that respond to the negative things that you put out into the world Mm -hmm. right and so remember what i was saying about how people are like if you call them a racist they're they get all startled up like oh my god Mm -hmm. but what i wonder what physically happens to them when you call them a racist they probably get this knot in their stomach Mm -hmm. that it's that's that trauma we like white women and their bodies are used to reproduce these bodies that commit violence Mm -hmm. that is what white women's bodies are used for that's not that there's no why why do we find power in that why do we find power just because you have hegemony doesn't mean that everything is okay with you are you addressing the trauma that you've experienced with having to call someone out of their name call someone the n-word like do you not realize what happens to self when you point your finger there's three fingers pointing back to you Mm -hmm. and that's that there's a reason for that. Like, it's just right there in your face. There's a reason why you, people feel, people feel very startled when you call them out and you name it, right? When you name that white supremacy within them, because that is an energy that is harvesting within your stomach or your heart Mm -hmm. or your head or your womb. Mm -hmm. It's harvesting, it's manifesting, it's building itself. And you are just fueling it with the negative things that you put out into the world so why don't we address so the, what's beautiful about the book is it addresses how white bodied individuals who perpetuate white supremacy how they're truly unsettled they're unsettled bodies and mm-hmm. so they're very fragile that's why white fragility that's a that's a thing mm-hmm. because there's some fragility with you with not having to address how racist you are because you're afraid And I think it's because you're afraid of not having anything else, but you have yourself. And I think that's what we need. That's why it's a, it's something that is, we need this of everyone. It's not just black and brown bodies that need liberation. I think that white people need to be liberated from this idea that they're supposed to have hegemony over, that they are supposed to be basically God right? That they're supposed to say, but they're not, they're not, they're just the same as everyone else. And that's what we're trying to say. Like, I think that Menachem, that's his name, Menachem. That's his last name. I got his last name remembered. He talks about unsettledness in a way that's like, when you don't address something that's traumatic that has happened to you, it builds itself. Over time, it, it just keeps harboring. You might even have dreams about it. 
you might even get a you might be even afraid to interact with people because they might trigger that trauma for you but what happens if you address it what happens if you address the racist within Mm-hmm. What happens when you address the anti-blackness within? Because as I have anti-blackness, people have internalized, white people usually have internalized racism. I think that we have this fear that if we address it, we won't have anything else. But I, we will, we will, we have ourselves, we have self. At, in this moment, there are white children being taught to hate their black classmate. And that black classmate is being taught to hate themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's some point in time where children, they, they develop their personalities, they develop their um, opinions and all of that stuff. What happens if we have a group of white children being raised not on the principles of white supremacy? What, like, what, 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 does, what does that even look like? Mm-hmm. We don't even know what that looks like because we associate white people with white supremacy, yes, because they've made it, but let's, what happens when we detach those two things from each other, from one another? I think that white people are just actors for white supremacy. You, you meet some people who are not really willing to perpetuate white supremacy. Right. And what is different about that one white person compared to that racist white person? They're both white people. They both benefit off of, you know, pri- they benefit from privileges, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. mentally, in their mannerisms, how they articulate themselves. As I said earlier, I think that racist people have a certain way that they carry themselves rather than people who are not racist. And I think that also shines light to their energy that they are carrying. I think of children as little cups. They're little cute little crafted cups. Depending on the person that has whatever liquid you you pour into them will determine the outcome of that drink of that child you know that's a weird analogy but it makes so much sense to me it determines how they see themselves mm-hmm. because if you fill them all up with this with whatever negative energy then that's all that they see themselves as what's so beautiful too is that if you give someone you, i feel like you just got to give that person one thing that will change their mind and that will literally unravel everything every single thing i remember in high school when i thought i was a feminist i thought i was a feminist everyone wants to claim that they're feminists i thought i was a feminist because i wanted women to be equal as men but i didn't realize that i was saying that i want to obtain the power and the same hegemony over as men i don't want to be liberated i want to have power and that is why there needs to be a distinction of white feminism and feminism. And I think that it shouldn't even be called white feminism. I think that if it's not feminism, it needs to be addressed as white supremacy. It doesn't even deserve the name to be disguised as. It doesn't deserve that. But I thought because if I, I thought if I hated men, I was a feminist. I thought if I didn't wear makeup, I was a feminist all of these weird just constructed rules and regulations of how to be as a woman Mm -hmm. so you can obtain and associate yourself with masculinity rather than actually being liberated from the masculinity that's like oppressing you i remember when my my mentor josie and she had actually was arrested for staging at a trump rally in uh, denver i remember she would also always go on a tangent about like 
white feminism and how it's not real feminism. And I'm like, you don't, I'm like, mm. I know you got a bachelor's degree, but you don't know what you're talking about. All feminism is feminism. But little did I know, I didn't understand what I was talking about until I remember I was taking my intro ethnic studies class with my professor, uh, uh, well, instructor. She was like, what about the women who, w- women are pushing to be put into the workforce, to be able to have the same rights as men. But what about the women that have already been working? And I was like, hey, 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 what are you talking about? That's when it clicked for me. It was that one word that clicked. That is why there's a difference. There has to be a distinction between white supremacist feminism and actual feminism. Because I've been working. My ancestors, the women who came before me, they've been working. Why? Because they were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to a group of people, the descendants of a group of people who've been slaved, like forced labor, and you say, well, hey, we're, we're pushing to be added into the workforce. That's not on their agenda because they've been working. What is the agenda within feminism? White feminism. What is the agenda of white feminism? I believe it is to be able to have the same power and same hegemony over others. It's not for the true liberation. You don't really want to be liberated from. You just want to be able to say, hey, we can do this too. We can, we can oppress too with you. Give us the same tools that you have so we can help you perpetuate this system rather than dismantle it. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, I'm going to be honest. This is the first time I've heard about white feminism. So this is helpful. Right. <laughs> and when I found out about it, I, even, I, I was really disappointed, right? Because as a black woman, I was taught that white, white feminism would be the answer to my liberation when really it was just it was trying to pull me in as an actor to think I was liberated mm-hmm. I would live in this facade that I'm liberated but I'm really not because I'm literally just emulating that power over I don't want to have power over people mm-hmm. I don't want to be an authority figure that's why I don't I changed my major mm-hmm. because if I want to be a true feminist if I really want the work to be done then it starts with self. And what are the ways in which I perpetuate this system on a day-to-day basis without even realizing it? So by saying, oh, I hate men, that doesn't make you a feminist. You hate men. Mm -hmm. Because men also need feminism to to be liberated from toxic masculinity. Yes. And they don't even realize it. Femininity is so demonized. Femininity is so hated. And that is what it's rooted in. White feminism wants to re-emulate masculinity to have power over. Why is your agenda just about working and having the same rights as men? Why do you want your rights to be like a man's rights when they have the right to harm? They are given the agency to do whatever. I don't want that power. I want something better than that. That was something that would hold me accountable and make sure that I am treating my neighbor with respect. I want that liberation because it goes, I feel like that liberation is rather reciprocal. It's rather more reciprocal. And that's what I want. I want something that's authentic. I want something that's going to be sustainable. And that is why I had changed. I had to change my major. I was like being a political science major isn't right for me. 
not only am I not benefiting from the fact that like these classes are just reteaching me about the issues that are affecting me as a black person, but I don't want to be a politician that has power over people and isn't truly for the people. Mm -hmm. And why do I think that the only way I can be for the people is by becoming a politician or by becoming the president or by becoming a senator? Or by becoming a governor, I don't need those artificial titles to tell me when I can and cannot enact, like, my liberation. Like, I, I don't need that. We don't need all of these labels in order to do. We can just do. And mm-hmm. I have to, I have to, I wake up and I have to sit with that every day because it's a, it's a learning process every day. You don't just wake up and become an ally. You don't just wake up and you're just not racist. You don't just wake up and you're anti-black. You don't know. Why? Because if it took, I'm 20 years old. I've been taught for 20 years of my life to hate myself. It's probably going to take more work than that to make myself actually love and genuinely love myself with no question. And that is what I'm working towards. And that is what I want. As I said, I have 10 younger siblings. I have a sister who's Korean and black. I have a brother who's Korean and black. I have a sibling who's Mexican and black. Like I have siblings with very diverse identities and we share blackness in a very particular way. And I need to be sure that I set myself as an example of how to become and live in a hopeful state. You know what I mean? And be, as much as we want to be liberated, like there's a lot of deconstruction that would have to work, right? Because I still contribute to the system by being a college student. I contribute to the system by investing my life into getting a career. Like, like there's ways that we contribute to the system. We depend on them in a certain way. However, how can we manipulate the system now? I understand that in a way I contribute to the system by being a college student because that institution literally is on the land of the Arapaho Nation, you people. Navajo people. They were on this land, specifically in Fort Collins or Arapaho. I sit, I had to sit with that. I think it's interesting because there's no answer, right? There's not really one answer to it. And that's where most of my hope lies in too. I used to be a perfectional, perfectionalism is a part of white supremacy. I think it it certainly is. There's a, there's different um, types of, uh, things we do on a daily day on a day-to-day basis that are tied to white supremacy we don't and perfectionism i think that's one of them right because you're trying to force yourself to meet the status quo constantly 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 and when you don't meet that status quo then you hate yourself but i remember i don't know when it was i started to realize okay i don't really want to give myself expectations i don't want to give myself not necessarily goals i still have goals i manifest in work every day i think i need to be more comfortable with taking things as they are and experiencing it rather than trying to have control over it. And white supremacy tells you, hey, as an individual, you need to have control. That's why they give you all of these things, right, that make you feel like you have control. Mm-hmm. But you really don't. You really don't. Right. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. But you know what's not an illusion? Your spirit, mm-hmm. your soul, yourself. And so they can try their hardest to make you believe that you're insufficient. But what happens when you don't even listen to them anymore? That's the, that's the. Yeah. Woo. I'm like, I just want to clap. 
clap. Like, we can clap. Like, this is really the space that you and I are creating, the space that you've honestly created, and you've allowed me to come to this space to create even more space for other conversation like that in itself is very beautiful this is an act of resistance because we're having this conversation i don't think that activism is just protesting Mm -hmm. activism could also be you know today i'm gonna drink some water you know today i'm gonna make my bed you know or today i'm actually gonna sleep in right because your job tells you you need to work nine to five no, you don't need to work nine to five. Why do we only think of our life in terms of hours that only correspond to working and that work that only really benefits those who are in power? Right. I don't want to think about my life and I don't want to live my life on the basis of a capitalistic rhythm. Nine to five? What about five to five? Like, what if I want to stay up the whole entire day? I think we have so much mobility but there are systems in place that don't allow us to see that mobility. Mm-hmm. They don't allow us to see our own agency and constrict us. But just as they were built, they can be taken down. And that's what we're working towards. Yeah. That's what we're working towards. We want, I, want, I want to live in a state of pure happiness. That is really what it is. I want to be happy. I want my friends to be happy. I want my mom to be happy my dad to be happy, my siblings to be happy without walking outside worrying about getting shot mm-hmm. or worried about someone calling them the N-word or worried about being pushed on the playground because their skin color. Mm. That's not happiness. No. I'm serious. Like, I'm coming for anyone that doesn't realize how serious my happiness is. Mm. And white supremacy is my number one target. Yeah. My number one target. I want everyone around me to be happy. I want us to be happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think we're happy. We're not fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And buying stuff is not going to make it better, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Trying to fill it with things that are fleeting and not really true to our soul, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have no doubt that you are going to make, I mean, you're already making an impact, but I mean, just hearing you speak and and hearing your heart and and your ability to be so vulnerable and, and share that with the world is going to make a huge difference. I would love to know, I know you said earlier that you're focused on the long run, so there's, I guess there's a couple specific questions that I'd like to ask you if you feel open to that. But in the long run, because I do know the importance of this, not just being a temporary movement, like this is a, a long-term revolution. This is something that will continue to be a fight in the long term. And so what does that look like to you? I think now that I understand how my spirituality ties into activism, I, in particular, um, in my journey with, because I can only speak from my perspective, I'm not too sure (laughs) what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to be good. It's going to be phenomenal. I know that whatever choice I make, as long as I give myself grace and as long as I am okay with me not being perfect, I think that it'll be well because the best things come in unexpected. 
but what are ways that we can prepare ourselves for the future i guess i can say that whatever i do now is going to impact the future and and it's interesting because i'm starting i'm starting to pull away from the way that we interpret time we we speak in time i don't know how to explain it but we speak in time like i was i she was right we understand ourselves in time but i want to understand myself in terms of my breath in terms of my prana Mm -hmm. and so that's where my spirituality comes in because i remember my roommate and a friend and I we were talking about um, how would we be able to like live without time? You know, those conversations you get into. Mm-hmm. And she's like, there's just no, my friend, my roommate was just like, there's no way that we could like humans wouldn't survive without time. And I'm like, but we did before. Right. Cause it's a social construction, but how did we, and I think in terms of breath, in terms of breath. So I'm closing my eyes and I'm thinking about, when I'm angry, right? When I'm angry at someone and I'm in a debacle with them, I probably use a lot of energy to tell them how much I don't like them. Or I'll probably use a lot of my breath. You know how people are like, don't waste your breath on that. Mm-hmm. I use a lot of energy dedicated to that one thing. And I think that's where some of your life is taken away. So the more time you spend being angry, or sad, or, and not to say, not saying, because emotions are good. If you need to cry, you better cry. If you need to be angry, be angry, but don't live in it. Don't dwell in it. Don't let that be your state of being. When you're sad and when you're experiencing all these angry things, you probably use a lot of energy and you sometimes probably become exhausted. You know, when you cry so much, then you fall asleep afterwards. Mm -hmm. If I try to spend more time in my life in this moment, being present and trying to use my breath towards things that will give back to me rather than things that will just take away my breath, then that is how I would want to live more. I think that's how I could live longer. We unfortunately live in this world where there are people who are in a state of anger and sadness because they don't have access to their given rights. Like they don't have access to the things that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And so that takes some of their life force away mm-hmm. because they spend more time being angry and sad over the things that they don't have. And by all means they do deserve rather than enjoying the things that they need to add more to their life force. How can I preserve my energy? How can I preserve my breath? by breathing, by being present. I believe that by doing those two things and really trying to pay attention to my surroundings will allow me in the long run to be here. And I mean like in the physical world to be alive. I think that how can I make sure that I'm comfortable really? Cause that's what it is. Like when I'm uncomfortable, I have anxiety. I'm like not breathing. You're, you, it's it's interesting too because think about when you're when you have anxiety, right? Or you're scared. You're like <sighs> using exhausting all that energy, all that breath is just leaving your body, leaving your body, leaving your body, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're calm, you're like, ah, you know how they do it on the on the commercials. Get this drink, <sighs> right? It's in our faces, but we don't even realize that when we 
take and we use our energy towards things that don't give back to us, it's taking away from our life forces. And that's why we need to understand the term racial battle fatigue. Because although you want to be on the front lines, if you don't have, if your energy is not right, if you're not aligned, you're probably gonna be doing more harm to yourself being on the front lines than you are at home, meditating, reading, sleeping, eating. They make us think that those basic, doing those basic things, there's something wrong with that. Oh, you eat too much. You shouldn't eat. Don't eat too much, right? Now you don't want to eat at all. Now your body's like, hey, 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 we like that. But because of someone told you, now you don't want to eat anything, right? Mm-hmm. Or you sleep too much. Why are you so lazy? Get up. Go to work. Why are you not at work? But if your body's telling you that you need to rest, then why don't you rest? It's really interesting to me that all of these basic things that we do on a day-to-day basis are really what will allow us to be here and stay here. Yet I see that it's like a trend. So, so for me, it was a transition. I was once in a position where I didn't have the agency to practice my spirituality, to think about my breath, to really indulge in those practices that really kept me happy because I was homeless, because I experienced food insecurity because I was also experiencing domestic violence from my family members and verbal violence and mental and emotional abuse. And I also saw my mother go through it. And my partner during that time, my first partner, my first boyfriend, he put his hands on me too, right? And so I was in these spaces that didn't allow me to see the birds that flew by my face because I was so freaking sad I looked down I only looked down at the ground and I only saw my feet that allowed me to walk but I wouldn't see when a butterfly would pass by my face because I was too sad by the grace of God I was able to have a ticket out of that and that was college of course I remember when I first began to create space for myself and that meant like being able to scream in a room without being afraid of someone yelling at you or dance in a room without someone telling you, oh, you're being too loud or you're acting obnoxious. I was able to create this space in my dorm. Of course, my roommate, I love my roommate because she tolerated a lot with me. And I'm very thankful for my roommate my freshman year because she really gave me space to do whatever, to be with Jakia. I think that as I was able to create space, my aura expanded. The energies that I had and I was harvesting and I wasn't able to express, it just blew up. It blew up. I was like, okay, I like this. Like, I like being able to wake up at this time and, you know, eat whatever and, you know, dance. And like, this is, this is someone's actual reality, but this is a privilege for me to have a bed to sleep in. And so now I take advantage of it. I hate using that word. I don't want to use that word, take advantage, because that's that kind of associates with rape culture. But I take what I have and I am grateful for it. And I am grateful for it by using it. So I use my bed a lot. I sleep a lot. <laughs> yeah. Because in high school, there were times where I didn't get to, I, I, would leave, wait, I would leave school at four o'clock, right? Go to the car and that was my home. And I wouldn't be able to sleep well. I didn't have a blanket or I I wasn't comfortable 
sometimes I wouldn't even be able to sleep at all. And the next day I would just go to school and act like it didn't happen. Mm. And that was for how many years? 17 years. Wow. Of doing that repetitively. And what's crazy is that no one knew, right? Mm. I remember I was talking to a, a best, my best friend from high school. And we were just, you know, sharing space with her beautiful daughter that she brought into the world. And I was just casually talking about something. She asked about my mother. And I was like, yeah, you know, we're still dealing with homelessness. And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, wait, oh, yeah, you never knew. You never knew that I was dealing with homelessness. One, you never asked, right? But then I never talked about it. Like, I played it off so no. well that no one knew that when that bell rang, I had nowhere to go besides mm-hmm. the car or wherever my mother was. There were times where, you know, I didn't even have, I didn't have a phone. My mom didn't have, she wouldn't have gas or something would happen to the car. And I would just wait and wait and wait after school. Mm. And I would just tell people, oh, I was, I just got out of an extracurricular. I'm just, you know, I'm just waiting for my mom to come and get me. And no one knew, no Mm. one knew until actually, I think that when this gets out there, people will know that I was experiencing homelessness in high school and no one, you know, but um, I had to keep my eye on the prize. So that small energy, that small breath that I had that kept me going, I had to use that same breath for 17 years. Hmm. And it wasn't until college that I was able to breathe again. Like, like actually breathe and actually be I was able to be Jakia. It's sad though, I'm torn, right? Because as I said, I have other siblings. They didn't have that ticket. Mm-hmm. And so I live in this space, right? Where I acknowledge that I came from something very, very sad. And it stemmed from, and it correlates to white supremacy. Like that's how I was impacted. Yeah. We weren't homeless just because we were another black family that didn't, that my mom just didn't have a job, right? We were homeless because of the institutions that allowed that to happen. Imagine going to college, right? You get that one-way ticket and all of the questions that you had about why am I experiencing this? Why doesn't my mom have this? Why am I going through this? They're answered simply with an education. You get all the answers as to why you are experiencing that. That's something to say. That's one thing to sit with. Now you know why. That's one thing to sit with. And then you're not in that space anymore. That's a whole nother thing to sit with. So it wasn't until I was removed from that space that I realized why I had even been there in the first place. I think that a lot of people may misinterpret me as very closed off or I'm a very um, iffy person with who I hang around with and who, I, who talks to me. Like I'm a very... I'm hyper aware of those things, right? Because I didn't have them before and I have it now. And I won't let anything get in the way of this place that I'm in, that I yearned for. Like, it's crazy that 12-year-old Jakia would sit and close her eyes, you know, thinking about where she wanted to be when she was 20. And I'm 20 now. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional because I don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. I'm getting emotional because now 
it's no longer a dream. It's no longer an imagination that you have between going to city to city because you don't have anything else to do besides hope that you get out of it. And look at me now living it. I ought to be damned (laughs) if anyone thinks that they could get in the way of this state that I'm in now because it, my mom sacrificed, I sacrificed. I moved out of my, um, well, I didn't really have a home, but I created my own home at the age of 17. I left the house that we were in, um, that we were living in because that breath, you know, that small breath that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. it was about to deplete. Mm-hmm. Someone was gonna, they were gonna take that. Like my family members who have a lot of trauma, you know, who haven't had the opportunity to deal with that trauma. They were projecting onto me so much that I was about to lose that breath. And of course that assault didn't make it any better. And other things on top of that didn't make it better. I had to let go of my mom. I had to let go of seeing my siblings, my baby sisters, my baby brothers, all because I wanted to be able to breathe. I didn't want to suffocate anymore. And the fact that I'm actually breathing and I'm in a state where I have autonomy, you got to let you, you got another thing coming if you think anyone is going to challenge this. And it's, and it's crazy because it's not even a lot, right? Like uh, in terms of like money, right? If we were to put a price on the things that I own, I don't own anything. I don't have wealth attached to my name. I don't have a savings account that has money that was saved from my parents' parents and then before, right? I don't have that. Mm-hmm. But I have a bed and I have a pillow and I have a, and I have a room and I have a bathroom and mm-hmm. I have a sink that runs clean water and I have a dresser that I can fold my clothes in. I don't have to keep my clothes in a trash bag anymore. I have a refrigerator. And I know that the food that I buy, I, I know that the food that I buy will be there unless my roommates get hungry, right? <laughs> but I have these basic things that I, that were, they were, it, it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable as a 12 year old girl to think that I could have this because I thought that as a black woman, well, not a black woman, I wasn't a woman then, but as a black person, I was taught this narrative that this is the reality of black people Mm. and this is the norm for black people. And I need to accept this. But my mom, mm -mm, my mom wouldn't allow it. Mm. And I want to take space because this is my first time doing a podcast, right? I'm so blessed. And I will be sending this to my mother, but I want to take space to talk about that woman. I can't even put in words of how beautiful this woman is. She doesn't even realize it. She doesn't realize that when I see her, I see a star and not a regular star you see when the night falls. I'm talking about the sun. My mom is that amazing because although she didn't have anything tangibly to give me, she had her words that taught me That if I manifest enough, and if I want it enough, and if I sit with myself enough, I will have it. 
irregardless of regardless of what anyone says mm-hmm. who cares what they say she would always be like you're jakia do you not realize that and i'm like mommy like what does that mean like i'm jakia i'm just your daughter and she's like exactly that's exactly who you are my daughter and I never knew what that meant. And I never knew why my mom always used to push me so hard or why my mom would get angry at me for not defending myself, for not seeing that I was worth. She didn't have anything from what I know, right? Because you never, what's interesting about our parents is that you only know them as your parents, really. You don't know about their first heartbreak until they tell you. You don't know about all of the things that you experience, you don't know how they experienced it. They don't tell you that because you just see them Mm -hmm. as your parent. I remember my mom would tell me little snippets of like her childhood. And I was like, what? And we're here now and we still don't have nothing. But you spent how many years of your life not having anything and you're still here? And you have hope? Mm -hmm. And you live in a state of hope, mommy? That woman is so amazing because how can you experience abuse, experience the loss of a child, experience racism, experience being hated by your own family or being treated ill by your family? How can you experience that and still be here and just move off the basis of hope? Mm -hmm. Hope is not even tangible. You can't touch it. But that one thought, allowed her to be which allowed me to be i she will i always try to tell her how much i appreciate her and how cool she is and how smart she is my mom is so smart (laughs) a woman is so smart she was telling me about these things that i wouldn't even realize apply would apply to me now at the right moment too Mm. My mom, when I was 10 years old, was teaching me about the law of attraction, making me read, um, what's the book called? The Secret. The Secret, right? Yeah. Making me watch that. And I'm trying to like hang out with my friends or something, and she's making me watch this, and I'm like, okay, yeah, these cool people, like, they manifest and stuff, right, right, right? And look at me now, being mm-hmm. that person that's manifesting, manifesting, manifesting. Crazy how everything's full circle. And that's my favorite shape. My favorite shape is a circle because it's continual. It doesn't yeah. stop, right? doesn't have any, like, hard, hard curve. Well, I guess it does. It has some curves, but it's continual. As much as my mom poured into me, I want to pour into her. I think I'm the first person in my immediate family to travel out of the country. I remember, as I said, I don't really have a great relationship with my mother, That's due to, I just found out she has some things that she contends with that doesn't necessarily allow us to communicate that well. My mom fled last year. She fled Colorado to find a different life, you know? And so I don't really get to hear from her as much as I'd like, you know? But I remember I posted on Instagram me seeing the beach for the first time in my life. I was 20 years old when I seen the beach for the first time. And I remember she swept up on my store and she's like, where are you? Like, are you okay? Like, she was so appalled that I wasn't where she thought I was, that she thought I was in danger. No, mommy, I'm seeing the beach for the first time. I'm putting my hands in water, Mm. salt water (laughs) for the first time. 
That's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Right? And I can only describe to her what I experience. And I want to live to my fullest potential. And I want to live long because I'm not just living for me. I'm living for my mom. I'm living for her, truly. And it's, it's crazy because I remember there were times, right, where she would give up on that resiliency that she would want to instill in me. I remember there was a point in time where she was like, look, Kia, like, you're not going to be able to go to school anymore. Like, you can't go to high school anymore. Like, you're going to have to drop out and you're going to have to watch this to kids. And I have to work. I remember telling her no. I didn't, it didn't sit well with me, of course, saying no to my mom, right? <laughs> but because she told me to say no to her if she ever told me to second guess like it, my, my future or do anything that would throw me off of my path. And I remember her being so heartbroken that I didn't want to stay home and take care of the kids because I knew that that would financially cause so much harm to our family. And it did. We were in homeless. We were still homeless, right? She told me, you're right. Like, she would just be like, okay, you know what? Never mind. You're right. Whatever. And it caused some tension between us because she didn't think I wanted to support her in the way that she needed to. But I had to realize, you know, and I thought that I was supposed to be supporting her in certain types of ways. But I realized I was a child. I'm the kid. And so I can't take on that responsibility, Mom. Because Mm -hmm. you told me that you need me to go to college and get this degree and then come back later. Mm -hmm. And so I have to stick with that. And I'm still sticking with it. And I'm living through Mm it. And then I'm in my last year Mm -hmm. of college. My last year of college did not a pandemic is going to stop me from graduating. If I can't walk across the stage, that's okay with me because I have it. I have my degree. I completed the task that she wanted me to do. It's beautiful. It is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And now that my mom is gone, you know, she's not here anymore um, to take care of my siblings. I now have to position myself in a way that my mom positioned herself for me, for the kids. But I also need to balance being a student. And I also need to balance starting my life. And I guess I'm contending with having to start my future and, you know, be good for Jakia and also help Soul, Twyla, Jaden, Lamarion, Lonnie, Josiah, Genesis. I could go on. There's so many names. <laughs> How do I do that? And that's my next chapter. And that's what I'm really investing my energy into now is my family. Because mm-hmm. my family is a form of resistance. Making sure that my siblings live is a form of resistance because there are black families dying, mm-hmm. intentionally being harmed. Mm-hmm. And so it is, an, it is an act of resistance to make sure that my siblings are okay, to make sure that they feel loved, to let them know that irregardless of those police officers that are out there killing black and brown people, your life matters. Mm-hmm. There's no if and buts about it. And I'm going to be stern about it. And I'm not going to make them second guess it. And I'm not going to allow them to be insecure. And I'm not going to allow them to, of course, they, you know, kids go through puberty and they get insecure sometimes. You know, that's their thing. You know, we go through that. But I won't allow them to be in that and, let, and live in that state of loath, basically. I won't allow it because that's not what we're meant, right, to do. If you're my sibling, you're going to get the life that you want. Taking care of myself making sure I'm breathing, 
Mm-hmm. Making sure I'm sleeping, making sure I'm eating and I'm drinking water. You know, there's some tendencies that I have. I'll do some things where other people are like, that's really weird, right? They'll, they'll call it out as weird. Or they'll be like, you don't do that? I'm like, no, I don't do that. But I realized that stems from me being homeless. Forgetting mm-hmm. to drink water, that stems from me being homeless because I didn't. There was times where I didn't have water. There are things, I have to rewire my brain not only to move to a state of decolonization, but also I need to rewire my mind and allow myself to understand that I do deserve a glass of water. I do deserve everything that's given to me. If you say, wow, Jaki, you did did really well on that. Yeah, I did do well. Thank you. I'm not going to no, I didn't, you know, because that's like white supremacy telling you to mm, don't, don't really congratulate yourself. Like, don't right. do that. It, it wasn't that good. No, thank you. I did do well. And mm. I'm going to try again tomorrow. And I'm going to do it again the next day. As long as I have my breath with me, you know, and the people that care about me, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Truly. And I'm having this revelation in my life where Ever since I was a kid, I was like, I'm not having children. I'm not going to have kids. I don't want to have kids. I want my life to myself. I don't want to be like any of y'all. I just want to be better than y'all. I don't want to have kids, right? Because we, for women, we say that if you have a child at a certain age, then you're, you're not a good woman, right? If you have a child out of wedlock, then you're not a good mm-hmm. person, right? And I was like, I want to be better than y'all. And it's sad because they would even, my, my family would even use themselves as examples of what not to be. Mm without even having the opportunity to address the trauma that happened and acted on them. Mm -hmm. But I used to say those things and I, it was really me just responding to a lot of hurt that I had with my family. And I didn't think that a, a beautiful family could exist, but it can. And it's really crazy for me to think that I have the autonomy, right? Cause I used to think I didn't have the agency that I have the agency to create a home for black and brown or whatever race the children come out to me, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever they come out. (laughs) I have the ability to create a space for them where they can have water, right? Where they can breathe, where they don't have to put their clothes in a bag, Mm -hmm. where they can see their humanity all around them and they don't have to second guess it. I can create a space like that what uh that's how i used to think and i used to and i and i would i would disguise it as me just trying to be better no i was hurt i was hurt because my father wasn't really there as much as i wanted him to be there and i didn't think that i was lovable i didn't think that someone would want to love me and you know give me children and have a family with me mm-hmm. and that's really what i was running away from mm-hmm. Because I want someone to be able to take care of me when I'm older, right? I want that. And so I'm stepping into this. I guess it was already always there. I just couldn't see it because, you know, my head was down. But I'm stepping into this world where I just keep getting more agency to have autonomy over my life. It's really profound because I'm starting to realize that I don't want a mansion, you know. I don't really care about that stocks, the stock stuff, or the investment stuff. I don't care about all of these things that they want us to care about. I don't care because for most of my life, that wasn't a priority. 
my basic needs were the priority and that's what I didn't have. And so now that I had that opportunity, those are the things that I want to invest my life into. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. As long as I have my family that cares about me, friends who care about me, I have a roof over my head. I have my, you know, my wants, you know, you want, you want you know, I like to get my nails done, you know, all those things. <laughs> I am sound. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I will be okay. I will be so thankful too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Sorry. But, yeah. Mm. I, I, I just have a feeling that you'll be more than okay for some reason in <laughs> in just your your presence, your light, that your your voice and and what you have to share with the world is is powerful. And I would agree with your mom. <laughs> I would agree with your mother. Yes, yeah, you are Jakia and that's a powerful beautiful thing. And so I think we're going to have to wrap up this recording, but I know that this is not the last we're going to hear from you. <laughs> it better not be. Right. Let's hope. Lose my hope or something. No, no, no. You, you're a powerful force. And, and like I said at the beginning, powerful force of light and, and hope for so many people who don't have hope. I think to be able to look to you and hear your story and, and feel your energy that you put out and know that hope is, it, it's, it's available. It's available for them. So thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability and for your love and your heart. And thank you so much for being here and sharing that with us. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Thank you for doing this. I'm very thankful. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories, and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart, experiences, and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to thewespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The We Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.